History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this was our fighting power. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. When Jeremiah confronted Jehoiakim in the fourth year of that king's reign, not much had been going right in Judah's history. Josiah died prematurely. His son was evil and replaced by the pharaoh of Egypt with a king who seemed even more evil. And that was in 609 BC. That king was Jehoiakim, whose name had been changed by the pharaoh and was pretty friendly to Egypt. In the fourth year of his reign, though, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, came up to Syria and crushed the Egyptian army at the city of Carchemish, ending Egypt's ability to control and influence the whole region that we call the Levant, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, of which Judah was a part. The Bible even says that Pharaoh never left his land after that. That's how decisive the defeat was. And then after that, Nebuchadnezzar came down to Jerusalem with his army and took Jehoiakim prisoner. But then Jehoiakim was released, most likely because he promised to submit and pay the Babylonians a big tribute. And so Nebuchadnezzar was able to carry away a lot of gold and silver, a lot of the temple treasures, as well as the best and the brightest youth from Judah all the way back to Babylon. And that was only the beginning of sorrows. Now, before that confrontation, God had Jeremiah write down his prophecies in a scroll. Jeremiah had a scribe named Baruch that was helping him do that. But evidently, Baruch needed some encouragement to get the job done. And in some ways, you can see why. He was seeing what was going on all around him in Jerusalem He knew things were getting bad and it was only going to get worse. So he became focused on protecting himself and his own ambitions. I find this interesting because put yourself in Baruch's shoes or think of what a lot of people in this situation would do. It would be easy to think about bailing ship at this moment after Nebuchadnezzar had just come and carried away some captives and a lot of treasure. But God had some things that needed to get done. And here's what's recorded in the 45th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Quote, Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, unto you, O Baruch, you did say, Woe is me now, for the Eternal has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say unto him, The Eternal says thus, Behold, that which I have built will I break down, and that which I have planted I will pluck up, even this whole land. And seek you great things for yourself, seek them not. For behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, says the Eternal, but your life will I give unto you for a prey in all places where you go. End quote. So God's telling Baruch here that if he does the job, then his life will be preserved. And I love this account because it's such a close look at the raw 
human emotion that comes out when living in such a terrifying, chaotic time. It's just living in the extreme of the human experience, seeing your nation fall apart all around you. Baruch responded positively, though, to that warning, which was great, and he went back to work, and the scroll was finished after that first wave of captivity happened. At this time, a fast was proclaimed in Judah, and a fast would normally humble the people. So the king and Judah would have been in a more receptive mood to hear whatever message God would have for them. At this point, though, Jeremiah was prevented from delivering the warnings in that scroll in person on the temple grounds for whatever reason. He was shut out of that whole area. Previous warnings had earned him nothing but trouble from the king and his court. So when the scroll was finished, after this fast was proclaimed, Jeremiah told Baruch to go to the temple and read the words in it. And Baruch does what Jeremiah said to do. He went to the temple and he reads the scroll. But he is no dummy. He went to the area in the temple where there was a group of priests that were more receptive to Jeremiah's warnings. He specifically puts himself there at a place that is known as the Chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan. This was near the new gate of the temple, so not only that, but people entering the temple complex from that direction through that gate would have heard the words. And perhaps the people going in on that side would also be more receptive to Jeremiah's warnings. Shaphan, by the way, was the scribe of Josiah, a righteous king and Jehoiakim's father. And he had sent Shaphan to restore the temple of God after Manasseh's evil reign. He was the scribe who read the book of the law that Hilkiah found to Josiah. So Shaphan was instrumental in helping Josiah clean up Judah and have the people turn to God. Shaphan's grandson, Micaiah, was there now at this time, and he heard Baruch and told the princes about what Baruch was saying. This shows that Micaiah was someone who respected Jeremiah and, more importantly, wanted to listen to God's word, just like his grandfather would have in Josiah's time. The princes then had one of their own, Jehudai, seek out Baruch and bring him to read it to them aloud. So the princes got to hear the word as well, and perhaps because of the fast that would have humbled them, enough of the princes wanted to inform the king of these words coming from God through Jeremiah. They told Baruch to go hide, and they also told Jeremiah to hide as well. Which shows you just how dangerous this whole situation was. They knew the message in the scroll would not be easy for the king to hear, and that the king would likely lash out calling for the execution of both Jeremiah and Baruch, just like he had did with Uriah. But once again, you see the courage of Jeremiah and Baruch here as they were doing God's work in such a hostile environment. The king himself, of course, was under a lot of pressure at this time after submitting to Nebuchadnezzar and having all that uh, situation with the captives and the treasure being taken happening at the same time. The way Jeremiah recorded this history, by the way, is pretty fascinating because it shows just how important God's word was and is today and how much respect Jeremiah had for it. In the account, he lists everyone who handled the scroll, every person it was presented to, everyone who had some kind of possession of it. And it just shows how important it was. It's like they were handling an original copy of the Constitution, for example. 
But of course, it was something more precious. It was God's word. So Jehudai and the princes take the scroll to the king and they store it in the chamber of the royal scribe that was there. And then they go to the king and explain that Jeremiah had Baruch write these words down in the scroll and that these are all prophecies from God that had been given to Jeremiah and were for Jehoiakim and Judah. And that Baruch had been reading these words aloud at the temple and that the priests and the people had heard and also the princes had heard these words and that the king should also listen to these words. Now, of course, the king probably didn't want to, but there was a large number of princes requesting this and a lot of them had already heard, so he probably felt like he had to. And for the princes, there was, of course, safety in numbers in doing this. It was impossible for the king to ignore. So the king relented. Jehudai went and grabbed the scroll from the chamber and brought it to the king. And at this point, the king was in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the hearth, keeping everyone warm. Jehudai starts to read the prophecies, but when he got partway into it, not very far into the scroll, Jehoiakim became enraged. He rushed toward Jehudai. While taking his knife out, he stabbed the scroll and lifted it up with his knife. And we don't know exactly what was being said at this time, but it was clear he must have been yelling that he was going to burn the scroll and destroy it because Jeremiah recorded that three of the princes pleaded with the king not to destroy it. Those three were Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah, all who had respect for God's word and were willing to risk the wrath of the king to preserve it. And I think it's worth mentioning their names for that. But the king ignored their pleas and he threw the scroll into the fire and all those present watched it burn to ash. turns out the king would not repent. And even worse, he destroyed the precious word of God. The king then orders some of his guards to bring Jeremiah and Baruch to him, but Jeremiah recorded that God hid them. And then God told Jeremiah to write the same words he had on the previous scroll on a new one, but add some extra prophecies. Here's one of them, quote, Therefore, thus says the Eternal of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat and in the night to the frost. End quote. So now you know how God felt about that act of rebellion from Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim would not get a burial and he'd have a disgraceful end to his life. God also added, quote, and I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. And I'll bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I have pronounced against them. But they hearkened not. End quote. In other words, the countdown toward destruction was on again. The clock was ticking down to zero. Now there's a lot of detail around Jeremiah's life and I'll go through some of it, but I'll have to pass over some of the parts that are recorded in Jeremiah. But this show's sponsor has a lot about Jeremiah and his life and his warnings and the deep meaning it has for today. And I'll make sure I'll put some links to that information in the show notes. 
But since this is primarily a history show and a bit different in that regard compared to the other programs on our network, I want to focus more on the history of Babylon because it helps get an understanding of what the Jews and Jehoiakim were facing at this time. And of course, the other nations as well, those that were surrounding Judah and were also conquered by the Babylonians. In that first wave of captivity, when Daniel was taken captive, he wrote about how Nebuchadnezzar essentially brain-drained the entire kingdom of Judah, taking the most educated Jews and the most promising youth, many of which were from the royal family, so that he could use them in the administration of this newly formed Babylonian empire. That's pretty smart for Nebuchadnezzar to do, actually. It not only weakens the subjugated people, but it also strengthens the empire itself. And the Babylonians would take these nobles and educate them over in Babylon and put them through an extensive and exhaustive examination and training period that lasted three years. Daniel wrote this in his book, quote, The king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. End quote. They were taken to a Babylonian college, you could say, that also would have functioned as a way to inculcate Babylonian culture into these slaves, which would help strengthen the fledgling and loyal bureaucracy for the empire. And because there were slaves removed from their land at an early age, it would have also been very effective. The ties to the homeland would have been pretty weak, and the odds of them rebelling or betraying the empire would have been pretty low, especially since they were treated so well as Daniel recorded. Not to mention at this time, Babylon the city was undergoing a renaissance. Nebuchadnezzar and his father before him were building the city up to a point where it would surpass even its former glory and be fitting for the capital of a world-ruling empire. These captives were brought to the city at a time when it was booming. New palaces, new temples, bigger walls, more trade. All of that was being added to the city. There would have been a very cosmopolitan feel the impressive structures, the size of it all, all of that would have been very impressive for these youth to see. It was the capital of the empire, the cultural center of all of Mesopotamia, and the place that birthed all the pagan religions of the world. To many captives and foreigners, and especially to the Babylonians, this was the center of the earth. And the Bible gave a description of Babylon and summed it up perfectly. The Bible says, Babylon the Great. The Great. One adjective. Babylon was a symbol used throughout the Bible. And at this time we're talking about, it captured the minds of those in the West. Just one city. When you look at history, only Rome could challenge Babylon for being so influential. And even then, Rome was so influential because of the Catholic Church being there. And the Catholic Church was just a derivative of the Babylonian religion. So even Rome owed its glory to Babylon. So what was Babylon like? Even though Assyria, which we talked about in an earlier episode, held political sway over the region longer 
And even though its new capital city, Nineveh, had its towering walls and was in many ways more impressive in that way, even that city did not match Babylon's splendor, prestige, or influence. In Rome, it has its Colosseum, a monument that we still remember today and that still exists right now about 2,000 years after it was built. But what did Babylon have? What was Babylon like? Babylon was the largest city of the ancient world. The city changed greatly over time, and the descriptions of its grandeur that we have today come mostly from Nebuchadnezzar's reign or after. Nebuchadnezzar and his father launched a massive building and renovation project that impressed many historians for years to come. It's hard to know exactly the size of the city. Records of eyewitnesses vary, but according to them, the city's walls were about 40 miles in circumference and enclosed about 100 square miles, which is pretty large when you think about it. And some sources say it was even bigger. It's likely these witnesses were including whatever homes and buildings were on the outside of the city proper and including the outer wall. There would have been ancient suburbs. George Rawlinson writes in his third volume of The Seven Great Monarchies that the ruins of Babylon, basically what are mounds today and maybe some broken brick stretched out for about five miles on either side of what we think is the city center, includes the whole urban district of Babylon. So imagine miles and miles of brick buildings surrounding an inner city towering like a citadel. Now I say towering, but we even don't really know how tall those walls were. Because once again, the historians vary in what they say. Some historians say the walls were at over 300 feet tall. And some put it at 75 feet. Now this discrepancy could be the difference between the inner and the outer walls. Or maybe over time, the walls were taller but were torn down or worn down. Either way, even at 75 feet tall, that was still very tall. And there were also thick walls. Once again, the sources outside of the Bible aren't always reliable. Herodotus, an ancient Greek historian, said that they were 85 feet thick. But other Greek historians say they were only 32 feet thick. Either way, once again, we have some very thick walls. The walls were made of bricks baked in kilns or dried in the hot Mesopotamian sun. They were laid in a cement of bitumen with occasional layers of reeds. And the walls had towers that were on top of them, 250 towers scattered around the walls, and they rose 10 to 15 feet higher than the wall itself. They were actually built on the two edges of the walls and allowed enough space for a four-horse chariot to not only ride along the wall, but even turn around in it. So when I'm picturing this, I definitely don't want to be a soldier scaling that wall when attacking the city. And I spent some time on the walls because when you look at the ancient historians, that seems to be one of the things that amazed them the most. Apparently, these walls were big, long and just in comparison to other cities a lot larger the city also straddled the euphrates river 
The river's banks were bricked on both sides by red brick, and there was one bridge that connected both sides of the city, which was roughly right in the middle of that city. Now, having only one bridge might have been mostly a defense mechanism, but I imagine traffic on that bridge during rush hour would have been pretty terrible. (laughs) And of course, the river going through it in that sole bridge added a lot more protection to the city. The Babylonians also built a canal from the river that surrounded the entire inner city that functioned as a moat. Have I mentioned that I wouldn't want to be a foot soldier trying to storm the city? Funny note, too, that's pretty interesting is that these bricks were easily and cheaply made in Mesopotamia, but they deteriorated pretty quickly. So you'd often hear kings, even after Nebuchadnezzar, renovating various temples or other major cities because the bricks didn't last that long. Nebuchadnezzar built the outer wall. He built a palace complex on the northern side of the city. So a new palace complex that was outside of the city proper and away from the masses and also on the east side of the Euphrates. And actually it was on the eastern side of the Euphrates that the most important structures of the city were, the temples, the most important temples and the palaces. Now, if you're an out-of-town visitor, foreigner entering the city after Nebuchadnezzar's reign, you would have wanted to enter from the north, from that outer wall, walking toward the inner walled area where you see the main gate. From the north, when you got to the edge of the inner city, you'd pass by an older palace complex that was joined to the outer wall. And then you would walk through the famous Ishtar gate at the inner wall. It was actually a double gate with the outer gate reaching 50 feet tall and both the outer and inner gates were built with ceramic bricks glazed with a bright deep blue decorated with dragons, bulls, and lions. These animals represented their pagan gods with the dragons representing Marduk. And it's estimated that on that gate, 120 lions, 575 dragons in 13 rows were put on there, made from molds, so that they all were exactly the same. Here's the dedication inscription on the gate, by the way, and he starts by talking about how he pulls down an older gate and puts this new one up. Quote, Therefore I pulled down these gates and laid their foundations at the water table with asphalt and bricks, and had them made of bricks with blue stone on which wonderful bulls and dragons were depicted. I covered their roofs by laying majestic cedars lengthwise over them. I hung doors of cedar adorned with bronze at all the gate openings. I placed wild bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorned them with luxurious splendor so that people might gaze on them in wonder." So he's pretty proud of what he did there. Now, there were eight major gates into this inner city. And when you passed under this blue double gate, you would have been walking on a brick-paved road called the Processional Way. It was a half a mile long, lined on both sides with tall ceramic brick walls that were decorated with lines. And it would lead you past some more of the palace complex there, which were massive and impressive. And the avenue would take you toward the center of the city. Now, if you think about the city, though, the real prestige and charm at that time, the power and its influence, all of that was symbolized not by the massive walls or the gates or the palaces 
but by the temples of the patron god of Mesopotamia, the chief god of this whole area, Marduk. These temples were for the god that ruled all the other gods in their minds. And according to the Babylonians, this is where Marduk actually lived. And this is what helped make Babylon so special and dominant in the area. The processional way took you to the two most important temples of the entire city, the temples of Marduk, Isagala, and the huge ziggurat tower, Etimenanki. And according to the ancient Babylonians, that statue was the god. And so that's where his physical presence was. And that was the most important thing for the Babylonians to ensure that their city would be blessed which is kind of an interesting note of history. Whenever conquerors of Babylon would come in and take over the capital, they would take the statue of Marduk back to their capital city to show off how they've got the Babylonians under their boot. Oh, you think your God's so dominant and loves you? Well, how come we can take him then? And the Babylonians would have just thought that Marduk wasn't pleased with them anymore, and that's why he was not in the city at that time. And that's how the ancients saw it back then. And even more interesting, every record we have of a conqueror who took Marduk captive, that conqueror died by being murdered by his family every single time. And then the statue would be returned. For the Babylonians, this temple complex was the center of the universe, created by their god Marduk, who brought order to chaos and who was the dominant god in Mesopotamia, and that all other gods, according to them, were just manifestations in some way of Marduk. So it was the centerpiece, culturally and religiously, of the city, and really of the entire Mesopotamian culture. Sagala was about 30 acres in area. It had gateways that reached 30 feet high. It had a large outer court and another court next to it that was smaller. That smaller court led to the shrine, which was divided into two sections, an anteroom and a back room. And in the back room, that was where the idol of Marduk was housed, along with the consort idol as well. If you know much about the Bible, and I assume you do if you're still listening to the series, this was a clear counterfeit of God's temple in Jerusalem. And of course, historians would claim that the Jews just copied this from the Babylonians, But you saw the same pattern in the tabernacle from the ancient Israelites at a much earlier time. And God clearly told Moses that the pattern of the tabernacle, which was used in the temple as well, was the same pattern after God's own headquarters. So the Babylonian counterfeit in this temple complex, to me, shows that there is some inspiration from the spirit world in what they are doing though not of the godly sort. Weirdly, this structure was the most important one of the two temples, but it was the shorter and less impressive structure to our modern eyes, which kind of reminds me of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosques in Jerusalem. Everyone recognizes the Dome of the Rock, but the Al-Aqsa Mosque is more important. The other temple was the tower called Edemanaki, which translates to House of the Foundation of Heaven on Earth and it was located just north of Isagala, adjacent to it. And this was your typical Babylonian temple, which at the time were normally ziggurats. 
which were pyramids that were square or rectangle that were built in stages and levels so that you had basically a step pyramid. Sometimes these ziggurats could have two levels. Sometimes you saw them with as many as seven. And this one in Babylon was recorded to have had seven levels. The base of the tower itself was a shrine and part of the temple complex, and that was the area where the ordinary person could come and worship. But there would be stairs that would let someone climb their way all the way to the top. And of course, that was reserved for the wealthy and the nobles. At the top of the tower typically would be the idol. Now, we know more about the tower in Babylon from a similar temple in Borsippa, a major city 11 miles away from Babylon, which was made for the pagan god of Nebo. Now, in this temple, the first three levels were uniform squares in height, but were not as wide, and so a little bit smaller in area, so you get that step pattern. And then levels four through seven weren't as tall as these three lower levels, and they also diminished in area, so you keep that pattern, that step level pattern going as well. And you have quite a big difference there. The bottom level was 272 feet by 272 feet, while the top was only 20 feet squared. There would have been stairs there as well that reached to the top level as well. Now, each level would have stood out because they're all different colors. Each level represented the seven spheres in Chaldean astronomy, which for us today we recognize as the seven heavenly bodies in the solar system that they knew about. So each planet, each body was assigned some kind of color that was given to the whole level. The sun was golden, the moon was silver, Saturn was black, probably because it was so distant and small. Jupiter was orange, Mars was red, Venus pale yellow, and Mercury a deep blue. So each brick layer was made to give the color that they were associated with, with each level representing one of those heavenly bodies. So for the level that represented Saturn, they would blacken the bricks with bitumen. Mars was turned red by using bricks only half burnt, and so on. The level of the sun was covered with thin plates of gold to give it that golden shine. And the moon was plated in silver. And the moon was represented by the seventh level, by the very top. So imagine something like that in Babylon. It was a temple that was renovated by Nebuchadnezzar's father, but those renovations weren't completed until Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And in the so-called Tower of Babel Steel, there exists the only known depiction of this tower. And I say so-called Tower of Babel because historians believe that this was the Tower of Babel in the Bible, but we know this ignores uh, a lot of the actual history of the Bible. But we do know that this tower and the ziggurats made all over Mesopotamia were based on the Tower of Babel. And so you're looking at probably a similar structure. If you want to learn more about that history, I'll put some articles in the show notes as well. The steel shows seven levels, with the first level being much taller than the other six, and the shrine on the seventh level being actually quite tall as well. And the steel also depicts some stairs that go up all the way to the shrine. Now Herodotus states 
this about that top level. And by the way, he might have actually seen it for himself. He wrote this, quote, The ascent to the top is on the outside by a path which winds around all the towers. When one is about halfway up, one finds a resting place and seats where people can sit for some time on their way to the summit. On the topmost tower, there is a spacious temple, and inside the temple stands a couch of unusual size, richly adorned with a golden table by its side. There is no statue of any kind set up in the place, nor is the chamber occupied of nights by anyone but a single native woman, who, as the Chaldeans, the priest of this god, affirm, is chosen for himself by the deity out of all the women of the land. End quote. So that's a pretty good description of the top there. And of course, the idol in Babylon wasn't there because it was in the other temple. But that shrine would have had some kind of gold decoration for sure. And there's an inscription on that shrine that we get from the Tower of Babel Steel. And you can look that up and read it. I'll just quote a little bit of it. It says, quote, I mobilized all countries everywhere, each and every ruler who had been raised to prominence over all the people of the world. Loved by Marduk from the upper sea to the lower sea, the distant nations, the teeming people of the world, kings of remote mountains and far-flung islands. The base I filled in to make a high terrace. I built their structures with bitumen and baked brick throughout. I completed it, raising its top to the heaven, making it gleam bright as the sun. End quote. So this was Babylon's monument. Any visitor who saw it would have been awestruck. Foreigners would have heard about it from reports and probably would have even doubted what they were hearing. And if you were walking towards the city or traveling on horse towards the city, you would have seen that shining tower gleaming in the sun long before you would have seen the rest of the city. And of course, any invader would have had to handle this great city with care in order to conquer it. So if that great city with its expert Chaldean astrologers and astronomers and that seat of world government took an interest in you, say if you were a king at a small kingdom at the end of the Fertile Crescent, wouldn't you be pretty flattered? It'd be like some kind of venture capitalist from Silicon Valley coming to visit your business and say, hey, we have an interest in your business. I want to talk to you. It would be kind of hard to ignore, wouldn't it? And that was the Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar built. Of course, the project started under his father. And by the way, the transfer of power from his father to Nebuchadnezzar was pretty smooth. Of course, many of the kingdoms around the area were probably hoping that there would be some kind of civil war that would weaken Babylonia, just like it had weakened Assyria. But that's not what's happened. It's pretty clear in the records. Nebuchadnezzar at the New Year's festival was able to peacefully shake the hands of Marduk at that temple of Asagala and fulfill the requirements for a king to gain the favor of the gods in Babylon. And in that time, he would have assured the Babylonians that he would continue to restore that great city. And he did have a pretty long reign there, so he was able to accomplish and build quite a bit. And it's that Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, that we remember and think of today in our history. And that was the capital city of the superpower Judah was facing. A power that, when you think about this great city, could only be overcome through the help of God. But Judah was dying. Robbed of its wealth and its talent, it was a dying nation that was barely holding on. 
And while the destructive prophecies hadn't completely been fulfilled, it's clear that the fulfillment of those prophecies was starting already. The clock was nearly at zero. The first deportation was only the first convulsion of a sick and dying nation. But for those who refused to believe in these prophecies, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar didn't outright destroy Jerusalem and take everyone captive was evidence that Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these other prophets like Micah were making things up. And isn't that amazing? Your nation could be dying and your leadership may not even know it or be so willfully blind that they refuse to see it, even when they're told. That's how hard human nature is. Jehoiakim never repented. He never looked to God, and he never even seemed to consider that the prophets might be right. And at this point in history now, Nebuchadnezzar had campaigned in Judah's neighborhood and in Judah twice during Jehoiakim's reign. In 605 BC, when he crushed the Egyptians at Carchemish, and in 601 BC, when he forced Jehoiakim to submit and pay all that tribute. Egypt was out of the equation in the area now, so for Jehoiakim to consider rebellion meant he was actually thinking about going at it alone. And there was some recent history of what happened to cities that did that. There was a Philistine city, the city of Ashkelon, that rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. They even appealed to Egypt for aid, but Egypt never came to help, and Nebuchadnezzar came back and absolutely crushed that city. Those kinds of actions, by the way, tend to keep the locals in line, but not Jehoiakim. Even with that recent history, and with all the warnings from God against rebellion, Jehoiakim decided to rebel from Nebuchadnezzar. He stopped paying tribute and proclaimed his independence. He had only submitted to Babylon for three years, but that was long enough for Jehoiakim. Now, as I mentioned before, it does take time for a distant king to come and put a rebellious city or kingdom back into submission in these ancient years. While Nebuchadnezzar was getting his army ready to campaign again, he sent notices to the surrounding kingdoms in the area saying, Judah's rebelled, you have my permission to raid and plunder and destroy what you can. In the surrounding kingdoms, they decided to all stick with Babylon and they began to take Nebuchadnezzar up on his offer. Here's how 2 Kings recorded this moment. Quote, And the Eternal sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Eternal, which he spoke by his servants, the prophets, Surely as the commandment of the Eternal came upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did. End quote. So Judah was now an international pariah with the world's superpower on its way with a massive army and being attacked by all these neighboring countries. The only course of action left would have been for Jehoiakim to turn to God. And in this desperate kind of moment, by the way, it wouldn't have been that unusual. In times past, when the situation was dire, even some of the evil kings would repent and turn to God for help and mercy. But with Jehoiakim, you don't get that. He rejected all of the prophets all the way to his very bitter end. And now Nebuchadnezzar and his army had arrived. It's 598 B.C. 
and Nebuchadnezzar puts Judah back into submission. Now, the Bible actually leaves a lot of the details out in this moment. It just records that Jehoiakim died and was succeeded by his son Jehoiachin. But we do have the prophecies from Jeremiah about his death, which give us more detail. Here's one that hasn't been mentioned from Jeremiah 22, verses 18 through 19. Quote, Therefore, thus says the Eternal concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. End quote. So he wasn't going to be buried with the previous Judean kings. And we have the prophecy earlier about his dead body being cast out in the day, exposed to the heat, and in the night, exposed to the frost. And I find these prophecies amazing, by the way, because while Jehoiakim never acknowledged God's authority over his life, God still says, hey, I'm God, and whether you believe me or not, this is what's going to happen to you. Here's what the Jewish historian Josephus recorded about Jehoiakim's end. Now, it looks like Jehoiakim, when Nebuchadnezzar came, decided to open up the city gates to the Babylonian king in hopes that the Babylonian king would have mercy on him and forgive him for his rebellion. But that's not what happened. Josephus wrote this, quote, Now a little time afterward, the king of Babylon made an expedition against Jehoiakim, whom he received into the city, and this out of fear of the foregoing predictions of this prophet, as supposing he should suffer nothing that was terrible, because he neither shut the gates nor fought against him. Yet when Nebuchadnezzar was come into the city, he did not observe the covenants he had made, but he slew such as were in the flower of the age and such as were the greatest dignity, together with their king Jehoiakim, whom he commanded to be thrown before the walls without any burial. End quote. So it happened exactly like Jeremiah prophesied. I'd imagine when Jehoiakim is resurrected, he'll be much more keen on believing the prophets. So that's what you see. Jehoiakim in the end decided to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar says that's too late and ends up having him killed. Nebuchadnezzar was no fool after all. This was the former Egyptian puppet king who had rebelled once, and so the odds are very high that he would rebel again. I'd put it at 100%. And apparently Nebuchadnezzar did too because he had Jehoiakim thrown off the walls of Jerusalem and commanded his dead body not be buried, just as Jeremiah prophesied. This was accompanied by more slaughter, most likely of all those who cited and encouraged Jehoiakim to rebel. And then Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim's son, began to reign at 18 years old. But he was also a wicked king and was confronted by Nebuchadnezzar after three months and 10 days on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar was obviously still in the area, campaigning around the Levant, so it was no trouble at all for him to come back and replaced Jehoiachin with a king that was more favorable to him. And that's pretty understandable, really. Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't be comfortable with Jehoiachin on the throne. His father had just rebelled. He had killed his father. And so that's likely to produce some hard feelings and create a disposition towards rebellion in the future. This was one of the shortest reigns ever by a Judean king. And his death was also part of the fulfillment of God's prophecy that was a result of Jehoiakim burning the scroll. Jeremiah prophesied to Jehoiachin, quote, Thus says the Eternal, 
write you this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, nor no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. End quote. So we have some very specific prophecies going on. He even talked about Jehoiachin's mother being cast out to another country and dying there, which the book of Kings showed was fulfilled. Here's what it records, quote, At the time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon. He and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers and the king of Babylon to him. So there you go. Just like what was prophesied. And in this moment, Nebuchadnezzar carries away many people of Jerusalem. The Bible says all the princes, all the mighty men of valor, and even says 10,000 captives were taken, including all the craftsmen, all the smiths, and none remained in Judah save the poor of the land. This time, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just take the young nobility and the best and the brightest. He took every skilled person he could, as well as all the mighty warriors and all the best princes there. Anyone that had any productive value to an economy was taken back to Babylon to serve the empire there. The Book of Kings really highlights the point that many craftsmen were taken, saying 7,000 of those taken were craftsmen and a thousand smiths as well. One of those captives in the second wave of deportation was Ezekiel, who was a priest and whom God started to talk to in captivity. But that wasn't all. Nebuchadnezzar also looted the temple of nearly everything. Here's what Second Kings says, quote, And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the eternal, and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon king of Israel had made in the temple of the eternal, as the eternal had said. End quote. And then he made a half-brother of Jehoiakim king and changed his name to Zedekiah. This was the worst crisis to ever hit Jerusalem. This countdown to destruction that I've been mentioning over and over finally reached zero. And if there is any doubt of that, or that the prophecies of Jeremiah weren't coming to pass, you would have had to have been pretty arrogant and blind to not see that. And it'd be hard for anyone to see or imagine or think that for those left behind, there could be any real recovery from this moment. And when you look at what God was doing, you'd know why. When the next king was on the throne, God showed Jeremiah a vision of two baskets of figs, one with ripe ones and one with rotten figs. And God told Jeremiah this, which was recorded in the 24th chapter of his book. Quote, Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. For I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land. And I will build them and not pull them down. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Eternal, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return unto me with their whole heart. End quote. So captivity was actually a mercy. 
But of course, you'd only understand this, though, if you had God's perspective. As for the evil figs, those were the ones left behind with Zedekiah in Jerusalem and Judah, and God said this of them, quote, And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, in all places where I shall drive them. And I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them, till they be consumed from off the land that I gave unto them and to their fathers. End quote. So there was a reason why they were left behind. There'd be more punishment for those stiff-necked Jews that needed it. And yet we'll see that every step of the way, they were still offered chances to repent and turn to God and to avoid some of the worst parts of these punishments. You could say that the countdown to destruction has reached zero, but God was giving these evil figs an overtime to give them another opportunity to repent. So I'm just carrying forth that analogy there. We're in overtime. Of course, it was unlikely, but God was merciful and they still had a chance to turn to him. Now, getting back to the history that's been recorded, here's what the Babylonian Chronicle stated what happened when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and carried off all those captives. Quote, The seventh year of Nebuchadnezzar, in the month of Kislamu, the king of Akkad mustered his troops, marched to the Levant, and set up quarters facing the city of Judah. In the month of Aduru, the second day, he took the city and captured the king. He installed there a king of his choice. He collected its massive tribute and went back to Babylon. End quote. So there's what you have from the Babylonian record. And of course, the city of Judah here was referring to Jerusalem. The book of Kings recorded that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, made Madaniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, uh, king in his stead and changed his name to Zedekiah. So just like before, we have a king installed with a name change, which when you really think about it, I think would be really discouraging if you had your name changed it a good piece of psychological warfare that was. After that, Nebuchadnezzar went back to Babylon. And I think this is a good time to actually look and to see what the history shows about how living as a captive Jew in Babylonia would have been like. The deportation, by the way, was a continuation of sorts from the Assyrian policy that I discussed in an earlier episode of this series. The Assyrians would subdue kingdom, and then they would deport the population to another faraway part of the empire. And this was a way to make it harder for those people to rebel and overthrow their overlords. Very hard when you're in a foreign land surrounded by aliens to find any kind of support for rebellion like that. Not much chance of it working. And then at the same time, the Assyrians would bring in people from faraway land into recently subdued areas to fill up the land that they had just emptied out. And that would do the same thing, of course. Those people that just came in would be a lot less likely to rebel. And this was their policy in dealing with troublesome areas. The Babylonians deported the Jews, but what they were doing was a little bit different. After decades and centuries of warfare in Mesopotamia, the area that the Babylonians brought the Jews into were actually areas that were depopulated and just needed people there to work the land, make it more productive for the empire and give a way to actually get some revenue from it. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those Jewish captives. 
What would you do? What would you be thinking? What's next? These people were God's chosen people, set apart, not only in their heritage, but in their law and their customs. And now they're in a faraway land, unable to worship God at the temple. So what are they supposed to do? What would you think about that? Being removed and taken to a place, surrounded by foreigners, with your whole life uprooted. Everything you planned, everything you dreamed for, everything you're working for, and as well as your children's future, all uprooted and taken away. That'd be pretty hard. Now, I think there's definitely a part of me that would be trying to find a way to get back to Jerusalem somehow and to the temple where I can worship God and live the way I want it to. And I'd be looking for a way to escape. But that'd be pretty foolish. What would you do if you had a family with you? How could you escape with a family? How could that happen? Especially if you were under guard. So do you instead settle down, make this area that you've been settled into your new home, put down roots? What would you do? This is where God's revelation becomes so vital. And God definitely revealed what they were to do. I'm sure they were praying for it. God answered, gave revelation to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah wrote the people that were in captivity an encouraging letter that's recorded in Jeremiah 29. But before I get into that, realize that this was still a confusing time for some of those Jews. Because at the same time, while Jeremiah is issuing his warnings from God, there are false prophets in Jerusalem and in the captivity claiming that they were speaking for God. So it would take real discernment to know who was the true prophet and which ones were the false ones. And clearly it wasn't a numbers game. God was only working with Jeremiah in Jerusalem and then later Ezekiel. These false prophets were a noise trying to drown out the true word of God. But God gave help to Jeremiah, and anyone who was paying attention would have known who God was really speaking to. For example, when Nebuchadnezzar came down with his army and was establishing a new order in Jerusalem, he actually threw two of the lying false prophets into a fire and roasted them alive. Jeremiah called them villains. So there's one way to figure out if they're false or not, which one was God protecting So the false prophets were saying that the captivity would be short and that Judah would overthrow Babylon soon and were encouraging the captives to resist Nebuchadnezzar's authority and to not put down any kind of roots. But God, through Jeremiah, was saying that they do need to accept Babylonian rule because captivity was going to last for some time. Here's what Jeremiah recorded. Quote, For thus says the Eternal, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. And I will be found of you, says the Eternal, and I will turn away 
your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you again into the place where I caused you to be carried away captive. End quote. So put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish captive. You've been forcibly ripped from your house, from your home, everything that you've known, and then you get this marvelous revelation from God telling you that in the end, it's going to be okay. And imagine if you really could put yourself in that situation, you'd have tears of joy just running down your face. And even then, some of those in the captivity continued to refuse to accept God's word, continued to reject the humbling God was giving them. A certain false prophet in captivity found out about that letter He might have heard from the letter being read aloud, or maybe he read it himself. And he sent a letter back to Jerusalem claiming Jeremiah was a false prophet who should be shut up. Jeremiah finds out about that. He writes another letter to the captive saying that that guy who just said that, he was lying and he's teaching rebellion against God. He even prophesied what the false prophet's punishment would be. By the way, this actually does give some insight into the captivity. The fact that they're able to send letters back and forth from the Jews in Jerusalem and those captives in Babylonia reveals that they were still connected at this time. There was a network that they were a part of. So the Babylonians were either allowing it or even possibly facilitating some of this. And it does show that the Jews were going to be allowed to live a certain normal life, at least to a point. Otherwise, Wouldn't the Babylonians just cut off all communication? We actually have some non-biblical records of the captive Jews as well. There was a set of clay tablets found by archaeologists in the 1970s called the Al-Yahudu Archive. I don't know how to pronounce that, but that's what I'm going with. It was named after a town that the Jewish exiles lived in Babylon. And that was likely where the tablets were discovered, but we don't know because the tablets were bought on the black market. So no one knows for sure where they came from. But the tablets do show that they're clearly from some Jewish exile town in Babylonia. Al-Yahudu literally translates to Judah town. The tablets date to a time about 30 years after this second deportation, though some of the tablets even date all the way into the Persian Empire. So it's a pretty credible source, and it's right in this time period. Biblical Archaeology Society wrote this about the tablets. Quote, Composed of about 200 tablets written in cuneiform, the archive records events from the daily lives of the exiled Judahites, from tax payments to rental agreements. They go on to say, From these documents, it becomes evident that the exiled Judahites were not slaves, but rather state dependents who retained their identity as a group. The latter is demonstrated by their names, which often contain the element Yah, Yahu, or Yama, the Babylonian version of Yahu, meant to link them with their deity, Yahweh. End quote. So the captives weren't slaves. Although, of course, some of them would have been put to hard labor, no doubt, especially those that would come into captivity later, and that third way, who were being punished more severely by God, But if you are obedient to God's word, you could end up owning property, plantations, and even own your own slaves. And this shows, this record shows that God did fulfill what he told Jeremiah and those captives he would. And it gives you a small peek 
into what it was like in captivity in Babylonia at this time. Now, we get more detail about that first wave of deportation, the one that included Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar took the best and the brightest back to Babylon to test them for government service in his empire. Daniel was a part of that group, his friends as well, and they were taking back to that massive city that we described earlier there with all those massive structures being built, that cultural center of the world, really. And Daniel provides the only source that shows what Nebuchadnezzar was like at all. You see, the Babylonian record explained what he did, and typically with any king or emperor, you have to piece his character or personality through that record, teasing out whatever you can based on maybe the choice of words used or maybe the logic behind some of those decisions. Even then, those were official state records that were both history and propaganda designed to make Babylonia look good. So the details that we get from the Babylonian records aren't like what we get with Daniel. With Daniel, we get something honest and true. Nothing glossed over. The bad isn't ignored. It's all put out there. And he portrayed the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, well, probably the way we would expect someone that had so much power would behave. I won't get into all the details, but I do want to share that first encounter because it does give an insight of what captivity would have been like for the Jews, at least in that first deportation. Here's what Daniel recorded in this first encounter. Quote, And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. End quote. Let that sink in. Nebuchadnezzar just made this outrageous demand. Even the king's wise men, who were probably used to outrageous demands, were blown away by it. And then they very politely tried to tell the king that this was impossible and here's a good look of Nebuchadnezzar's personality. Quote, The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such things in any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king required, and there is none other that can show it before the king, except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain, End quote. So when Nebuchadnezzar realizes his demand would not be met, he orders all the wise men, even those not involved here, to be executed. 
Which, hey, I think in some ways we could all appreciate some accountability in our leaders, something that we have lacking today. But this was some good old-fashioned tyranny going on. Now, you know the story, I think. Daniel finds out, tells the king to hold on, give me time. He tells his wise men friends, his fellow Jewish captives, to go pray to God. They all pray to God to help them out. God reveals the dream to Daniel in a night vision. Daniel told the king about that vision, which was super important, by the way, when it comes to understanding history. And then after that, here's how Nebuchadnezzar reacts. Once again, this is the only place that we have any information on the way Nebuchadnezzar lived in his personality and his character. Quote, Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing you could reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. End quote. So Nebuchadnezzar was a man of extreme tempers, but also of extreme gratefulness. And that's really what I said before. What you would expect from someone who is used to getting what he wants, when he wants it, and how he wants it. By the way, I did an episode that looked into the archaeological evidence of the book of Daniel and its veracity. A lot of people just think Daniel was made up way after the fact. I won't get into that again, but if you want to look to see how you can prove all those people wrong, check out an earlier series I did that covered Daniel's veracity, and that is in the Antiochus series. Now, just because these captive Jews were in the royal court didn't mean their lives were free of danger. We know the stories from Daniel's book that there are times when the three friends were facing death to defend their faith, being thrown into a fiery furnace. Of course, God protected them at that time, which was amazing. They were not going to deny God even if he didn't protect them. But afterwards, when they survived, they were promoted like Daniel. And so you can see that, at least in that first deportation, it was quite the opportunity for career promotions. Of course, not everyone in captivity lived that way. That was referring to that first deportation. One last point on this captivity of the Jews, and it really is hard to glean all the details and try to think about how they would have lived and what it would have been like. But there are some more details about the captivity from Ezekiel, who was a captive and God was using him as a prophet. And so there's some information recorded in there, specifically about the areas that they would have been. Ezekiel was settled in this river Kibar, which was right at the heart of Babylonia, Chaldea, near the city of Nippur, south of Babylon. And so what you see is that they're in Babylonia and kind of spread out in different areas, but they're all there close by, most likely farming the fertile land next to the Euphrates. So you have Jews in Judah, captives in Babylonia, and you have Jeremiah and Ezekiel speaking for God. Now, Zedekiah, Jehoiachin's uncle, was on the throne in a very diminished kingdom in a very diminished city. Remember, thousands of Jews have been thrown into captivity. It's very clear the prophecies of Jeremiah were being fulfilled. 
that countdown to destruction had reached zero and the kingdom of Judah had paid a heavy price for their actions in refusing to repent and for the actions of their king who also refused to repent. They were in captivity with no ability to return anytime soon. But for Zedekiah and his supporters, who were still in Jerusalem, to them, what they experienced was like a speed bump in the way of what I can only describe as a delusion of an opportunity for independence. That's how far gone these guys were. For four years, Zedekiah submitted to Nebuchadnezzar, but it's clear that Zedekiah was looking for any chance to throw off the yoke of the Babylonians. Of course, it's hard to blame him. His name was changed, his country was a mess, and a lot of that was thanks to Nebuchadnezzar, if you were to ignore the causes of the sins of Judah. But it's one thing to desire it and think about it, maybe dream about it. And it's another thing to act on it. Zedekiah was looking for an opportunity and it came when Egypt got a new pharaoh, Samtek II. Samtek began to meddle in Judah's affairs and in other places in the Levant. It's clear that he is looking for a way to grow and increase the strength of the Egyptian kingdom. Like the previous pharaohs, He wanted to extend his influence into this area and do so by removing whatever the powerhouse of Mesopotamia was. It's an uphill battle for the Egyptians, of course, but the first place to start is to gain some allies. So the pharaoh was probably sending emissaries to Zedekiah to work on the king and figure out what could they do together to rebel from Babylon. Perhaps he promised Zedekiah some aid. Hey, look, there's a new pharaoh in town. I'm willing to change the status quo. Do you want to work something out? And this was, of course, exactly what Zedekiah was looking for. But was it wise? Jehoiakim, Zedekiah's brother, conducted the same foreign policy and it wrecked him. Why would Zedekiah think going down the same path would not lead to disaster? Especially when Zedekiah was being told not to do so by God through Jeremiah. And God gave Zedekiah all the warning he needed. Here is what is recorded in Jeremiah 27. Quote, I spoke also to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, as the Eternal has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? End quote. So there you have it. There's punishment coming, but if they stay loyal to Babylon at this point, then they can avoid the worst of it. Now, to me, if I was someone who believed Jeremiah, I would be relieved by this kind of message and the revelation God is giving. God was extending some mercy here. And while serving Babylon wasn't the best case scenario, it could be a lot worse. They could all be dead or in captivity of a more brutal type. So that would have been relieving if you believed Jeremiah and you wanted to follow God's word. But for everyone else, those who wanted independence, this is exactly what they didn't want to hear. This would have been depressing, discouraging. And to them, to these people, those who rejected God's word, it would have even looked a bit unpatriotic. 
How could you say God would want his chosen people serving Babylon? And in some ways, you can kind of understand that sentiment. Who doesn't want a little self-determination right now? There is a powerful group of Jews in leadership that hated what Jeremiah just said and were working to oppose the warning. In one way, you could call them super patriots. But I say that with a bit of irony because we know that if you really wanted your people to survive, the nation to come back, then you would listen to God and what he had to say. Those people would be the true patriots. But these people ignored the warning. These Jews, well, you could say that they're probably waving the live free or die flags. They wanted independence above everything, above what God was saying and above the well-being of the people. Independence before everything else. Of course, they wouldn't think that their plan would fail. They were God's chosen people after all, right? But all they were doing was ignoring God's word. And if you did that and you fell for a delusion, then that's the kind of thinking you'd have. But God's word is true and perfect and a shield for those who trust in it. These were the rotten figs left behind, as God described them. You could say there was something rotten in the state of Judah. And unfortunately, they had the power in the king's ear. And now, after God gave these Jews an overtime period, after this countdown of destruction, they're going to be forced to learn that in the end, kings and people come and go, cities get destroyed and rebuilt, but God's word, it remains. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on thetrumpet.com or on kpcg.fm. I spoke a lot about Jeremiah and his life. His book in the Bible is one of the biggest, and it contains many prophecies and a lot of history, which can be daunting to understand. So if you want to study more into his life, and more importantly, understand what those prophecies are all about, I recommend ordering your free copy of Jeremiah and the Greatest Vision in the Bible by Gerald Flurry. You can get your free copy today at thetrumpet.com.